Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our evening series through this uh, wonderful uh, Gospel. And uh, this evening we'll be looking at chapter 1 and verses 2 through 8. Uh, Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 8. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, as we look once again to your word this day, we ask, O Lord, that you would feed and nourish our faith upon Christ, who is at the very center of this text, at the very center of the biblical message, the good news of the gospel, that there is a Savior for sinners, and his name is Jesus. O Lord, help us to know him better tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, this evening we continue with uh, the story of Jesus Christ. Lots of people have opinions about uh, who uh, Jesus was and who Jesus uh, is, but we go to the scriptures uh, to learn the truth about Jesus Christ. And Uh, In the mornings, as we've been studying uh, Romans, we have been learning about God's electing love through Jesus Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Here in the the Gospel of Mark, we're learning about his public ministry. And uh, and so here we go to the source uh, to learn about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, We learned uh, before that uh, John Mark, the author of this Gospel, uh, was a disciple of the Apostle Peter. Uh, And he wrote this sometime between the years 60 and 70 A.D. And uh, last time we were together, we discovered that the introduction to Mark's gospel uh, is nothing to just pass over. It's it's more than a mere introduction. It's a holy declaration. It's a divine proclamation that the Messiah, the promised one, has come. And he is no mere man. He's not... Uh, just another prophet. Uh, He's not just a a rabbi. Uh, He's not just an authoritative teacher. He is the Son of God. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the gospel. This is the good news set forth here in these pages. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's the good news of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He's come to save his people from their sins. 
There are lots of headlines in the world today. No headline would compare to this one. Though the Roman emperor Octavian, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, acclaimed world dominion and divine status for himself, it is Jesus Christ who has the true claim to the throne. For unlike Octavian, he is truly God and forever the king of glory. Mark introduces uh, his gospel of good news here in verses uh, 1 through 8. First of all, establishing from the outset who the gospel is about. We are not at the center of the gospel. Christ is. He, that is uh, Mark, makes it very clear from verses 1 through 3 that this gospel is about the person and finished work of Jesus Christ a person who was and is both God and man, a person who was and is God's chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah, anointed to fulfill all of God's covenant promises to redeem his people from the bondage and tyranny of sin. We also learned a couple of weeks ago that this gospel was written to introduce the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, indeed in Malachi 3.1, and in Isaiah 40, verse 3, God promised that he would send a messenger. And for uh, many decades and even centuries, people are waiting to see who this messenger would be. He would send a prophet to declare the coming of the Lord, the imminent coming of the Lord. And it was John the baptizer who fulfilled these prophecies and who would in turn declare a message of repentance of sin from sin, and proclaimed the coming of the one whose sandals he declared he was not worthy to untie. More on that in a few minutes. But Mark introduces us in verses 4 through 8. He introduces us to the, divine for, to the, the divinely ordained forerunner of the Messiah. And so we're going to take a closer look, first of all, at the man. Who was this man, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. Who was this man who holds such a prominent role in the coming of the Messiah? Where did he come from? What is his background? What kind of a man uh, was he? We already know that he wasn't doing his shopping on King Street and eating in the restaurants on meeting. Uh, he was quite a figure, and we're going to learn why he dressed the way he did and why he ate as he did. Well, the first thing that we've already mentioned about John the Baptist is that he was the divinely promised forerunner of Christ. According to God's inspired word, he is the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. He would prepare the way of the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we see these verses fulfilled in his life from Malachi and Isaiah. Secondly, he was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 1, we learn of the angel who came to Zechariah the priest and promised him that he and his barren, uh, aged wife would conceive and have a son. And his name would be John. And John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he of course, leapt in his mother's womb when uh, she heard, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. 
in a very mysterious manner, John the Baptist had a spiritual connect, connection with Jesus even before he was born. This is all mysterious, but we see it to be true. So John the Baptist, he was the divinely promised forerunner of Christ. He was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. 400 years of silence until the angel comes in and surprises Zechariah with this news that his wife would conceive and bear a son. His name would be John. He would be filled with the Spirit, and he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He was also a prophet. The description of John's clothing and diet uh, is a strong clue uh, that he was a prophet. According to verse 6, he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Any knowledgeable Jew would see that this was uh, uh, like the appearance of Elijah. Uh, and he, like Elijah, was calling God's covenant people to renewal through repentance and forgiveness of sin. John the Baptist was God's messenger sent to prepare the world, to prepare Israel for the coming of the Son of God. So he was the forerunner of Christ. He was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was a prophet. He was also an ascetic. John lived a life of radical self-denial, didn't he? He lived in the desert. He wore very uncomfortable clothing. He ate grasshoppers for dinner. How about that, kids? Want some grasshoppers for dinner tonight? John the Baptist ate grasshoppers, big ones, called locusts. He was a man who lived on what nature provided. Some suggest that John may have come from the Essene community at Qumran, the desert community located on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea that has become rather well-known because of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1947. Hundreds of ancient scrolls. This community of Jews sought to separate themselves from what they saw was lawlessness and worldliness and corruption amongst the religious leadership of Israel. John the Baptist may have lived in this community for a period of time. We also know that John, in addition to these things, was a humble man. In verse 5, we read that, quote, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. And so he was a very popular preacher or prophet, as it were. People were flocking uh, to hear him. This was the sort of first century George Whitfield, as it were. Uh, thousands of people were flocking uh, to be baptized by John, to hear him preach, uh, to receive this baptism of forgiveness and repentance. Uh, certainly, we have hyperbole here that, that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, but it sure seemed like it. And a lot of scholars believe that uh, about 300,000 people uh, went out to him uh, during this season, out to the wilderness, to the Jordan River. Here we have what appears to be one of the biggest revivals in the history of the world. And John the Baptist is the one they are coming to hear. Did it all go to his head? Uh, did he begin raising money for his new Mercedes-Benz chariot? Well, the answer is no. He didn't lose his focus. He didn't look for selfish gain and attention. No. 
In fact, just the opposite. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, to fully understand this statement, we need to know something about the cultural context in which it was made. I was just reading the other day in a a devotional uh, about this washing of feet exercise that Christ did with his disciples. And this was the the ultimate uh, washing of feet. We think about feet in our day. You might be kind of grossed out by other people's feet. I get that. I understand that. But our feet are pretty clean because usually they have uh, uh, some kind of shoe that has socks and uh, your, your feet stay relatively clean in our culture. And that culture, people walked with sandals and they walked through muddy, dirty streets where people th- threw things into the street uh, out from their home that were, well, let's just say, disgusting. And people walking through the streets uh, would have disgusting feet until they were about to walk into a residence and then one of the servants or slaves would wash off their feet so as to not bring in everything into uh, the house. Well, here is John expressing that he is not worthy to even unstrap the sandal and to clean the feet of the Messiah. All these people flocking to him, all these people showing him attention, but he's pointing them to Christ. And in John 3.30, he says with humility, he must increase and I must decrease. This, of course, should be the prayer of every Christian pastor and also of every Christian. May he increase and may I decrease. John knew his status, an unworthy messenger of the truth that the Messiah had come. Isn't this every preacher's true status? Unworthy messengers of the greatest news ever told to mankind. What a, what a contrast that John the Baptist has to many on television today, many self-promoters. He was denying himself in Every way. So we see the man, the divinely ordained forerunner of Christ, the one promised by God to prepare the way of the Lord, the one who was born to a barren and aged uh, woman named Elizabeth, who was uh, both a prophet and an ascetic and a man of deep humility, preaching God's truth to tens of thousands of eager listeners. So, whatever we thought of him before, this is what the scripture teaches us of the man, John the Baptist. So we know something of the man which tells us something about who Christ was as well. But what do we know about his message? What do we know about his message? Uh, Look with me at verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The first thing we want to understand about John's message is that here we have the turning point of all human history at hand. The reason that John the Baptist is called by Jesus the greatest prophet is because he is the prophet who introduced and ushered in the public ministry of the promised Messiah, God himself, veiled in flesh. 
central to his preaching is the passionate plea for people to realize that there is a massive transition taking place. This, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is the fullness of times, the fullness of time when Christ would come to redeem the elect. Central to his preaching is the passionate plea for people to realize that there is this transition taking place. No longer will God's people be worshiping in the shadows and the types and the promises of the old covenant. God is coming to stand among them and they must prepare their hearts for his arrival. So it's the turning point of all history. It's at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's the second part of his message, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Like Elijah, John was a covenant prosecutor. The Old Testament prophets, both major and minor prophets, were understood to be covenant prosecutors. They were like lawyers on behalf of God going and clearly communicating to the people of Israel that they had broken the covenant and they ought to repent. They must repent and turn once again to the Lord. Now, a lot of times that message was not taken uh, very kindly to. And what happened? Well, what happened is many of them died, were persecuted. Jesus confronted the Pharisees about it, that the prophets that were speaking of him were killed for their ministry of preaching repentance and true faith and the coming Messiah. And so this message was a message of repentance. They must repent of their sins in order to receive God's forgiveness. John was chosen by God to hold the covenant people accountable. The Jewish people had become either worldly or extremely self-righteous. Once again, we've learned in Romans, putting their trust in their ethnic ties and in their good works and not in God's grace. And John was calling them out to the wilderness to repent of their sins. This is an important aspect of the gospel of Mark and of other parts of scripture. We have this wilderness theme. Why the wilderness theme? Why this theme of wilderness? Wilderness is mentioned in verse 3, 4, and 12. This is not uh, some kind of a coincidence. Here we have a voice crying out in the wilderness. People are coming out to the wilderness to hear John in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove Christ out into the wilderness. What about this theme? It's an important one. In the Exodus, God rescued his people out from under the bondage of Egypt and Pharaoh, and he brought them where? Out into the wilderness. Why? To worship and serve God according to the law that he would provide to them through Moses, Exodus 7 and verse 16. God called them into the wilderness to renew his covenant promises to them, to remind them of his steadfast love and faithfulness. The Jews coming out to hear John and receive his baptism would have understood the connections between the wilderness, repentance, and renewed commitment to God. William Lane, a Bible commentator, he explains it this way, quote, John's call to repentance and his call to come out to him in the wilderness to be baptized are two aspects of the same reality. It is a call to renew sonship in the wilderness, 
The peculiar urgency in the call lies in the fact that the crisis of God's final act is close at hand. And so, dear ones, the people of God are called to the wilderness for a kind of second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. Throughout the history of redemption, God has chosen to unveil his plans in the wilderness, and here it is no different. And this this wilderness theme, it is all over the New Testament. We are wilderness people. Dear ones, it's so important for us to remember that we are not looking for some kind of nirvana, some kind of paradise here on earth. Every organization, uh, 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 store, um, uh, resort, uh, you name it, they all want to give you this kind of paradise uh, experience to uh, to, to make you, uh, one thing Marla and I like to do uh, to relax some time is watch International House Hunters. How many of you have seen that? International House Hunters. And it's fun to see people. And quite frankly, when you, when you watch a few episodes in a row, it becomes very predictable. The husband and the wife, they always disagree. One wants to be in the country. One wants to be in the city. Uh, one wants to spend more money. One wants to save the money. One likes traditional. Uh, one likes modern. Every episode is just like that, so... I've spoiled it for you. You don't need to watch it now. Um, and one thing that's it's, it's humorous is the way that they begin to talk once they've chosen their home or apartment or flat or wherever they're moving to, and they begin talking in these cra- this crazy hyperbole. Oh, it's just been so great these last three months. Every day we go swimming in the beach. Every night we go out to dinner and we enjoy fine food and wine. It's just so great to just relax every single I'm thinking, like, do you work? Do you do, you do anything but go to the beach and, and drink wine and go for a swim? And the way they talk about it, it's like that's all they do. And what is interesting about this is they're, they're kind of tapping in to this desire that every human being has to live in paradise, free from problems, free from anxiety, free from troubles. And it is knit into us because that's where we once were as humanity. We are wired to desire this place of rest, respite, this problem-free life where you get your new place and you just hang out and go have fun every day and no problems anymore and it just doesn't exist. I could go interview every one of those couples and say, all right, let's hear about your last year. Any problems? Well, yeah, the pipes burst in our apartment. That was awful. Water everywhere. Oh, really? Yeah, and loved one died and uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do now because the job that I was hoping for here didn't work out. Oh, why was that on the show? Oh, that would have ruined the show, you know. People don't want to see that stuff. We are wired to want this. But the fact is, dear ones, if we are thinking Christianly about life, we remember that we are exiles here. We are exiles here. This world is never meant to be a perfect oasis, a paradise. One day we will have that. But it is not now, and we should not expect it. We should not believe the lie that others can give it to us. We want to remember that we are in the wilderness on our way 
to the promised land. And the Lord is with us along the way. He is our peace. He is our comfort. What the world gives us is fading, and it will never satisfy. And we must not believe the lie that it will. Because again, so many are trying to make us believe so that we will purchase their product, so that we will uh, uh, go to the place they want us to go. Uh, But the reality is only in Christ will we find true joy and satisfaction, only in the promised land. And we are brought out into the wilderness as exiles and strangers in this world, trusting in the Lord. And here uh, we see this wilderness theme. Well, I'm sure that you've noticed the other major theme uh, in John's message, and that is baptism. Baptism. After Mark calls him in chapter 6, after all, Mark calls him in chapter 6, John the Baptizer. That's his, that is his name. The baptism uh, of John is something that uh, is important. A lot of people think that the baptism of John is, is uh, synonymous with Christian baptism. I can't tell you how many people over the years have said, well, you know, why would you ever baptize a child when Jesus modeled Christian baptism for us by being baptized by John the Baptist? Well, the response, I mean, there's a lot more to talk about with infant baptism, but uh, that's a pretty easy one, actually. Uh, that was not Christian baptism. It was a different kind of baptism. We're going to see that uh, tonight. Baptism is certainly a secondary issue as it concerns Christian doctrine, but uh, it is certainly one that has been a dividing line between uh, Protestants uh, for 500 years, along with the Lord's Supper. Some of the confusion stems from a misunderstanding, again, of John's baptism, the water baptism spoken of so prominently here in Mark chapter 1. The first thing I want us to recognize here is that this was an innovative baptism. It was a particular baptism in a certain context. It was novel. Though many Jewish ritual washings, cleansings, and baptisms were taking place in the first century, John's was different. You see, at Qumran, the desert community where John probably had come from, there were rites of initiation that included water baptism and also ritual washings. Many of these ritual washings were actually self-baptism, self-administered, some that took place quite often. Also, it had become a common practice for Jewish proselytes becoming Jews to receive some kind of a water baptism. Now, let's pause here for a moment and consider two things. Many types of baptisms were being administered, even self-administered, in John's religious context. John's baptism was different than the baptisms being conducted in his day. How? His baptism was a one-time baptism, and it was administered by himself, the forerunner of the Messiah. So we must understand something about John's baptism. It was, in a sense, unique to his own ministry. Just as John himself was a transitional figure coming after the Old Covenant and announcing the New Covenant, so was his baptism transitional, preparing people to come face-to-face with the Messiah. It was a baptism, dear ones, of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This baptism was the mark of his message. He preached repentance and forgiveness of sins, and the baptism was in reference to it. It is so inherently tied to John's message that he is said in verse 4, if you'll notice, 
to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When a person came to hear John and repent of his or her sins, they did not leave without receiving this baptism, an outward sign of repentance and God's sin-cleansing power, ultimately through Christ. There are obvious similarities and ties between John's baptism and Christian baptism. We should understand them, of course, as two different baptisms. Turn in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 19, verses 3 through 5. Here we're going to see a very clear reference that shows us some of these principles about John's baptism and the way it was understood. Uh, Acts chapter 19, I'll begin in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay. Problem. (laughs) I remember one of my roommates and I, and we were in seminary, we actually had a bit of a a chuckle about this. Um, We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. These are followers of Christ. Uh, They hadn't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. It's like people coming and visiting for the first time over the last few weeks at Christ Church and saying, I didn't even know about predestination. Um, It's it's all over uh, the Bible, but uh, somehow it can just pass over and people hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit Verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into what? John's baptism. John's baptism, a particular baptism in a particular context, a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Uh, and so here we see this, this baptism uh, in distinction to the baptism that Christ would later institute in Matthew 28 prior to his ascension. That is Christian baptism. Um, and so we must see uh, the difference John is the divinely appointed forerunner of the Messiah, and his baptism is a, quote, preparation for the messianic baptism to come. John's baptism was temporary, pointing to a greater baptism, the baptism of Christ with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's so much here, we don't have time to develop all of this um, uh, theology of baptism, but I want us to consider at least two things. Number one, The baptism of Christ is the new covenant sign and seal of God's grace. In the old covenant, the sign and seal of God's covenant of grace was circumcision. In either case, whether covenant circumcision or covenant baptism, they are both an outward sign of the work of God's spirit that only he can do by God's grace and mercy. These are signs signifying the cutting away in terms of circumcision or the washing away in reference to baptism of sin and the seal confirming God's steadfast faithfulness to his people. When we think about baptism, we don't put our hope and trust in baptism itself, but in what it points to, namely 
the cleansing blood of Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The application of God's saving work is carried out by the Holy Spirit. This is why Christ's baptism is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Only by the Spirit can a person be enabled to receive by faith what is promised in the sacraments. The second thing I want us to recognize here is that this baptism of Christ is not a second blessing baptism. There are those who believe in a gradation of spirituality as Christians, a gradation of Christians based on whether or not you received a second baptism with the Holy Spirit. Uh, There are those within our uh, wider tradition who have held uh, to this second blessing, as it were. But that's not what's being spoken of here. Every time the New Testament uses the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's always used in contrast to the water baptism practiced by John. And the reason Christ's baptism is called a baptism of the Spirit is because to be baptized into the name of Christ is to receive the sign and the seal of God's covenant of grace that can only be received by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in Romans chapter 2, we've been considering over the last couple of weeks that passage in Romans chapter 2, at the end of Romans chapter 2, that said that that circumcision is not outward, but done by the Spirit and is a matter of the heart. Uh, So that's what we must understand here. John's baptism was a water baptism symbolizing repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Christ's baptism is a water baptism that sets people apart from the world, initiates them into the people of God, and signifies the cleansing power of Jesus Christ and the regenerating, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism pointed to the greater baptism of Christ. Dear ones, John's uh, message and life are fascinating, but what do they ultimately teach us? Isn't Mark's description of John's life and ministry supposed to guide us uh, to Christ and to increasing measures of obedience? Yes, it is. The first thing I want us to see here is that the life of the Christian is meant to be Christ-focused above all. John's role was not only to point first-century Jews to the coming of the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, in the living word, is calling us as well to look to Christ. He's calling us to repent and and to look to Christ for grace and to, for the forgiveness of sins. And this is not something that happens just once. It's, it's our whole lives long. Martin Luther, in the opening uh, theses, in his 95 Theses, says repentance is not something you do just once. It's what we do every day as Christians. We repent of our sins and we look to Christ for grace and forgiveness. And we seek to live our lives confessing our sin and putting our hope and our trust in Christ alone. The uh, the Christian who is not confessing their sin privately and in and, and public worship and, and admitting to their faults and, and, and asking for forgiveness is not carrying out the life of true Christian piety and gratitude to God. Christ came down from heaven to purchase our salvation with his righteous life and sacrificial death, his cleansing blood. And he is our only hope of salvation. 
He is the greater Moses, leading us through the wilderness to the promised land. In Christ, you will not only find objective peace with God, but the subjective peace of God. So where are your eyes this evening, dear ones? Where have the circumstances of your life drawn your eyes? This is a call this evening from the Word of God through the ministry of John the Baptist to look to Christ, to keep our eyes on Him, to repent of our sins and to look to Christ for forgiveness. John calls us to repentance and renewal in Him. What specific sins do we need to repent of this evening? What patterns have developed in your life that you know you need to turn from? This is the question being asked in this text. Also, we see here self-denial. For the true Christian, we are called to a life of self-denial. If we are never denying ourselves, then we are in a very, very bad place as Christian believers. And so we see John, of course, he was a prophet in a particular time for a particular ministry, but his life of self-denial is an example to us and a reminder to us that we as Christians are called to deny ourselves. Look with me a few chapters over in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Let's actually back up to verse 31. Mark eight thirty-one, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The suffering and death of Christ was not what Peter had in mind for the Christian life. But it was the suffering and death of Christ that would save Peter from the debt of his sin, and to all of the elect. It was because Peter had his mind on the things of the earth that he rebuked the Lord for his prophecy, his foretelling of his death. And then verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him, what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We are not called to self-preservation at all costs. We are called to follow Christ at all costs, which is the call of discipleship. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. John the Baptist, of course, lost his life because of his stance for the truth, because of his faithful witness. May we heed this call to discipleship. May we have the heart of John as those who are saved by grace, as those who are objects of his mercy, as those who are his foreloved, as those who are recipients of his electing love in Jesus Christ, who have been made alive in him and and whose salvation has been accomplished in full, completely. May we be those who with grateful hearts, looking to please our Heavenly Father, to honor and to glorify Him with our lives, say with John, may He increase and may I decrease. Henry F. Light wrote these words in a hymn. And I'll end with this. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow Thee, destitute, Despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist for the calling upon this extraordinary man's life, the calling to make way and to prepare the way for the coming Messiah through his ministry of preaching and baptism, of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for his words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. O Lord, we pray that we would learn from this passage not only about your amazing grace, through the blood of Christ, through the, the baptism that, that teaches us and disciples us and reminds us of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration and sanctification. But we also pray, Lord, that we would remember the life of discipleship, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following you. It's better to lose our life than to save it than to always be worried about saving our lives. Father, we pray that we would not be about self-preservation as we are about being faithful witnesses of your gospel in this corrupt generation. Help us, Lord, to be salt and light, to point people to the hope of salvation, that they, to remind them and to, and to, to share with them that they will not find paradise here on earth that does not exist and every promise of paradise on earth will fail but your promises do not O lord and even now as we are in the wilderness as pilgrims as exiles as strangers in this world we pray that you would help us live by faith and to keep our eyes on christ and we pray this in jesus name